Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. Please contact us if you like. Send us a text message. Be part of this program today. We'd love to hear from you. The number where you can send us a text message is 0482098383. I'd like to say hello to our panel today. It's good to have with us Denise. Thank you, Nick. I'm really looking forward to this study. Hello, Brenton. It's good to have you with us, too. Thank you, Nick. It's, uh, I'm sure, as Denise said, it will be a very interesting study, this one. Joe, thank you for joining. Thank you, Nick. Pleasure to be here. Hi, Len. Welcome to Bible Study. Thank you. Hello, listeners, and we wish you the season's greetings. Lija, it's good to have you with us. I would like to say uh, from the beginning, thank you for uh, preparing this Bible study for today. It's an important task when you prepare this. You are going to facilitate the discussion. Thank you for joining the panel. Thank you, Nick. Lija, would you like to take us through, please? Yes, please. Thank you. Today, we studied the book Esther from the Bible. The story of Esther and Mordecai, much like the stories of Daniel and Joseph, being able to save the lives of thousands of people by being faithful to the values and wisdom passed on to them through their Jewish ancestors, facing an extraordinarily stressful and precarious situation. What was needed on their part, it was the courage to stand for life in the face of death to make wise decisions in connection with God's overall plan for humanity, to become a blessing to thousands of people and be part of a moment in history that was passed down via the pages of the Bible for centuries to come. We would like to start with prayer. Denise, would you like to pray? Yes, let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into the Bible once again we thank you that is an inspired book and that it contains principles for our daily lives. And we ask that your Holy Spirit will bless each of the panel members, but also bless the listeners. And we know that your purposes will be fulfilled and that you, um, Heavenly Father, are the um, major authority in this world and that you love each one of us and that you are looking to save each one of us. Yes. So we thank you for this opportunity now and we Leave our our lives in your care for this hour in your name. Amen. 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 One of the most inspiring accounts of cross-cultural ministry in the Bible can be found in the book of Esther. A great deal has been written over the millennia about this book. And to this day, many Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim based on Esther chapter 9, verse 26 till 31. The book of Esther is unique for several reasons. One of those reasons is the lack of an explicit reference to God. Nowhere is God mentioned in the entire emotional narrative sequence, but by the, not by the Jewish characters, the story's heroes, nor by the non-Jewish characters. Secondly, I found out that in this book, we can find the longest verse in the Bible, which is in Esther chapter 8, verse 9. Panel, I have a question for you. 
Would you vote for a book in which God's name isn't mentioned? Yes, well, I've got something to say about that. Yes, Len. Although the name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther nor in the Song of Solomon, the question is why were these two books included in the sacred canon? In other words, the books that constitute the Bible. Well, I think there are two very good reasons. Number one is the chain of events that occurred. For example, Vashti disinherited, if you like. She was no longer queen. Mordecai, who witnessed and hears about a plot against the king's life. The king couldn't sleep one night. And then uh, he heard about how his life was saved by Mordecai. And, of course, I, I'm not mentioning them all, but, of course, this one where Esther provides a feast for Haman and the king, and Haman pleads for his life, and the king misinterprets as he's making a pass at her, and so he was killed. You know, it indicates... And these are evidences of the providence and sovereignty of a loving God, a God whose plans, while they might be a bit mysterious, are nevertheless wonderfully executed. And it appears that God is working through all these things behind the scene. There's another reason. Esther and the people were praying. They fasted and prayed. So the question is, who did they pray to? Of course, they were praying to the supreme ruler of the universe. And so I think these are two very strong reasons, although the name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. These are strong reasons to include the book in the sacred canon. So the answer to your question about having a vote for a book or an inclusion for a book in the Bible that doesn't have God's name mentioned in it, my answer is yes, yes, yes. Thank you, Len. Let's go into the story. As we begin with chapter 1, where and when this story is taking place? Let's go a little bit in the history. Brenton, would you like to? Sure. According to Esther chapter 1, it mentions in verse 2, in those days when King Ahasuerus, that's actually the Hebrew way of looking at it, we know, is, know him in the Greek term as Xerxes, sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan. Now today, there is a city in Iran known as Shush, spelt S-H-U-S-H. That is the modern equivalent of Shushan. In fact, you can see the ruins of Shushan as you look at the city. This happened right at the beginning of Xerxes' reign, and um, he reigned from 486 to 465 BC, and he was the son of Darius the Great. Now, it mentions in the, at the start of it that he um, presided over 127 provinces, Lydia. You find exactly the same terminology used in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 1, where it talks about Darius, reigning over 127 provinces. In other words, he had a vast empire that he was reigning over at the time. Now, a little bit further down in the chapter, it talks about how he held a great feast that lasted 180 days and then an additional seven days feast on top of that as well. 
The question might be asked, what was this feast all about? Was it just showing what a great person he was? Because when you read the scriptural references, it seems as though he was demonstrating his power and his might and all the rest of it. In actual fact, uh, they were discussing the issue of invading Greece or going to war with Greece. I think he went to war with Greece twice. But anyway, in this particular thing, this is where it becomes interesting, Lydia. Apparently, the thinking was that when you planned war in Persia, it was planned in two stages. You planned the war when you were sober, and then when you were drunk, you decided whether the decision that you'd made when you were sober was good, or you planned it when you were drunk, and then when you were sober, you looked at it and decided whether it was a good decision or not. That is apparently the planning that is going on here. It sounds humorous to us, almost comical, but this is what was taking place. He was he was planning this uh, military um, escapade at this particular time, and partway through it, uh, he decided to invite Vashti, his queen, who apparently was stunningly beautiful, in to parade herself, if you will, before the men, and she refused. Thank you, Brenton. So <clears throat> why do you think uh, Vashti refused to come in front of the king when the king requested her to come. Denise. All right, let's have a look at Esther chapter 1, verses 10. Um, we'll go from there. It says, On the last day of the king's banquet, when he was in high spirits, he ordered Mehuman, Biztha, Habona, Bigtha, Agbatha, Zetha, and Karkas, his seven personal eunuchs, to bring Queen Vashti in before his guests. The king wanted her to wear her royal crown and yet to dress in such a way that everyone could see what an exceptionally attractive woman she was. And when the eunuchs told Queen Vashti the king's request, she refused to go and be put on display. They'd been drinking, and in the earlier verses it said that uh, the king was very generous with um, the wine and people could have as much or as little as they wanted. So if there'd been a party for seven days, I would think that, you know, there were, there was a lot of um, drunkenness and inebriation. And um, the queen, I think, was probably feeling that she was going to be humiliated in some way in front of these guests. Now, I don't know what she was expected to wear, how much, how little. It seems she was meant to come in her crown, but I think she was feeling unsafe and she's the queen after all, and these people that are there are... uh The seven-day feast was for those who worked in the palace from the greatest to the least. And the the king was extremely drunk, and she would have known that. And so I don't blame her for saying no. So how was interpreted on the other side by the king and the nobles? Oh, well, the king and the nobles, they wanted to punish her because they were afraid that her behavior would affect the behavior of other women in the kingdom. So he gets together with his advisors, and they come up with this plan to preserve their authority and their dignity, they're going to uh, get rid of her and they're going to proclaim that she can't be queen anymore and and she's not allowed to appear before the king anymore. And this is meant to encourage the women in the kingdom to obey their husbands. That's right. Thank you. Just a very quick one on that. This gives us a good example in the Bible, even though 
we may think that back in the Old Testament, uh, women were uh, more subdued or more second uh, second class class to say so. But here we have the example of how a woman, even though she was not necessarily from the, you know from the people of God, like to know God in that regard, but she stood for principles. She stood for an attitude. She stood for what she thought it's right. And she was a noble character. We can see through this position. That's why uh, we are surrounded even today by all sorts of coerced ideas and, uh, you know, cultural uh, aspects and politically correctness and all those things. That's an amazing example to stay tall, even if that costs you the crown in this case, and more than that in many a- other aspects. What a wonderful example and position from this woman. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing is, if um, if she was still queen, then Esther wouldn't have come to the That's right. to the party. So this is part of God's purposes, the way that it's playing out. So was she removed? From the kingdom, I don't know. I would, I would imagine, Lydia, that she would have gone back into something, but I doubt that she would have gone back into public life. And the other point is, I agree with Nick. I believe that um, actually she's an example of someone with good standards. Why would you want to come and parade yourself in front of a group of drunken men, which is what they would have been? There would have been all sorts of suggestive comments being made and all the rest of it. I think that she's, um, as Nick said, paid the price for um, having personal standards. I think this goes beyond just ignoring the king. I think it's probably a case of her personal standards. Okay. Thank you, Brenton. Len? Yes, just quickly. I think Vashti would have been well provided for. She may have had wealth of her own. I doubt if she would have gone back to the uh, harem, but she would have had a good place to live, and she would have been cared for for the rest of her life. Thank you, guys. Uh, let's go forward. Um, <clears throat> now, they were looking for a new queen. Who was that? And how the things went further? Joe? Well, it was an interesting, um, interesting development. In Esther, we've got in Chapter 1, it refers to the third year, that the, the time of the deposition of, of Vashti, happened in his, the third year of his reign, and then we don't get to the uh, the new queen till about the seventh year of his reign. So there's a there's quite a a span. We get the impression, if we're not reading carefully, that it happened overnight, but there's actually quite some time that passed. Now during that time, King Ahasuerus or Xerxes, as uh, as Brenton has called him, made a massive and un- unsuccessful invasion of Greece and came home a very defeated man. I believe his courtiers may have made the suggestion, in fact, I think it is recorded in Scripture, they made the suggestion that he should find himself a new wife to replace Vashti, and this was presumably to help the king move on from the loss on the battlefield and focus on other things and hopefully lighten his mood because you wouldn't want to be around a grumpy Persian king. All sorts of things could happen. So, what actually was suggested, um, young, vir- young women or virgins were gathered and only the best were taken to undergo 
um, an intensive beauty treatment in preparation for the king. The Bible says, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. The plan was to assemble a harem from the most beautiful women of the land, the king who would choose the most favoured woman from that group to be his next queen. Now, some historians put the, the group at around 400 women for the new harem. And this is where the young orphan girl comes in. Her Jewish name was Hadassah, meaning myrtle. It was a name of hope. It, is, it was associated with peace, love, and prosperity. Now, Hadassah was adopted by her cousin Mordecai after both her parents had died. She was, however, renamed Esther as we know her at some point in her life, presumably to either conceal her Jewish heritage or in honor of Ishtar, a Near Eastern goddess of love, beauty, justice, and fertility. So from the Persian perspective, it would have been a very fitting name as Esther was a, was very beautiful in face and form. Now, if the Bible tells us that she was taken to the palace, literally taken to the palace. So we may have, we may not know. I mean, she may have no, had no choice at all. So she might have been just collected. Yes, you'll do. You're beautiful. And given to the uh, keeper of the women who saw in her and readily gave her, saw her promise in her, like she was beautifully thought, Oh, she's got something. She's got the X factor. That's <laughs> a cliche, isn't it? And so readily gave her beauty preparations besides her allowance. In fact, he also gave her seven choice maidservants, to quote scripture, to look after her beauty needs. Now, this went on for a year until it was deemed they were ready to be presented to the king. Now, some people say that maybe it was a year because they wanted to be sure that none of these young women was pregnant. And that's a thought because um, they wouldn't want you know, the king, you know, taking on someone else's child. So anyway, the Bible tells us the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. Lots of competition there. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. So this was indeed a celebration, but I believe that God had his hand in it, um, that she found favor both with her keeper and with the king. Yes, that's right. Let's go forward. Why Mordecai forbid Esther to reveal about her background and keep it as a secret, Denise? Well, let's have a look at Esther chapter 2, verses 10 and 20. And it just says that in verse 10, on the advice of Mordecai, Esther did not tell Hegai that she was a Hebrew, gave him no information about her background. And then in verse 20, it said, in all of this, Esther kept her nationality and family background a secret as Mordecai had asked her to do. Um, now, there was some... Um, the people that were the Jewish people that were in this kingdom of Persia were under attack. They were um, going to be persecuted. There were others that had already uh, escaped, um, but they were under attack and they were going to be persecuted. And um, God was using Esther to protect them. So Mordecai told her twice not to reveal her nationality and family background. So if she was to tell them that she was a Jewess, she may not have been chosen to be 
part of the royal harem. And we know that um, Jesus uh, often in his ministry didn't actually say that he was the Messiah. So there was a time for revealing your background and your nationality, and there was a time for being prudent and keeping it quiet. So she did reveal it later on, and it was for the good of her people. That's right. Thank you, Denise. As a life application for ourselves, when can we disclose our identity and when we can't? Len? Well, sometimes if um, a person hears about you or anybody else, they might be prejudiced. For example, if you drive a Holden and they don't like Holdens, well, straight away you've got a black mark against your name. But when you win their friendship and their confidence, you can share more of the details of your life. And so particularly in religious issues, because religion tends to be a fairly conflicting thing, sometimes it's good to be quiet about what you believe until you've won that person's confidence. Thank you, Len. Uh, Joe? Sometimes effective witnessing requires um, silence. Sometimes, I'm not saying to be deceitful, but sometimes it requires to be silent um, and wait and listen rather than talk, 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 talk. Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Joe. Uh, Brenton? Just a quick one. I think uh, the advice that Christ gave to his disciples is worth remembering. We are to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Amen. Thank you, Brenton. Now, who is Mordecai in the story, in our story? Okay, well, Mordecai was a descendant of a Jewish exile. It says in verse 5 that he was a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, or Joachim, rather, king of Judah. Now, it also tells us, the Bible tells us that he sat at the king's gate. Now, exactly what that position was or is never really stated clearly. He could have been working as part of the palatial guards um, or as court officials who controlled access to the palace or perhaps even as a judge who listened to the various grievances brought to the palace gate by the people. Whatever it is, it was the king's gate that controlled who came in and who left the palace complex. Now, interestingly, um, while ex- archaeological excavations have been going on and off since the 1800s, the king's gate was believed to have been discovered in 1970. So this is what it says about it. It's located about 260 feet to the east of the palace, and the gate was set at the edge of a moat that separated the palace complex from the royal city. A bridge across the moat ended at this gate, thus ensuring that it controlled access to the entire palace complex. So we get an, an impression that there was a lot at stake here. Um, he was involved in who came in and who left, yeah, and I think out. that's probably how how he found out about the plot that we might be discussing a bit later on to assassinate the king. Yeah. Thank you, Joe. Now, I have a question uh, for the panel. Why Mordecai 
didn't return to his country of origin and preferred to remain there in Persia. Was this a good choice? Actually, in spite of Cyrus' few decrees of choice of repatriation that he released, he released actually one in uh, 538, the second one in 519, and a third one in 457. Not only they have remained there, but his ancestors in 597, his grandparents and grand and great grandparents. So why come? How come some people still remain there, and to them was Mordecai? Did they had a good choice to remain there? I mean, first of all, uh, uh, Lija, this is a very interesting thing. We mentioned before that uh, God is in control of all things, even when things may look uh, differently from our point of view, from a human point of view, God still is in control. This man seems to be a very wise man, and in particular, standing at the gate. That was a custom in those uh, days that uh, people who can give some advice, who can cancel other people, they will stay at the gates. There will be lots of questions and answers. You may remember uh, about few other characters in the Bible who stood at the gate, Uh, for example, Job and other people in the Bible. Now, seems like that this man was respected, well respected, and he may taught himself that he has a, a mission. We are talking today about God's mission, my mission. We, we can just um, come with some thoughts about him in regard to what the Bible tells us, but we don't know the whole story of this uh, man. Per ensemble to the story is that this was a very good, faithful child of God, and God used him almighty. Thank you, Nick. Joe? Well, I think that uh, that it's a very good question. Why was he there? Why were so many Jews still in exile when they'd had, you know, like three decrees to go back and provisions had been made for them to go home? There's more than one answer. Uh, yes, some got very comfortable. They had made a life in Babylon or in Susha or wherever it was in the provinces and they, they didn't really want to leave their well-established businesses or homes. After all, maybe some of their family had intermarried with the locals. It just becomes all too hard. But others, I believe that Lord, and I think you mentioned that, Nick, that the Lord impressed others to stay. We know that Daniel stayed, or you know, till the fall of uh, Babylon. So he was there, and God used him. So just because it's right for one doesn't make it necessarily right for another. God has different plans for different people at different times. And I think it's being in tune with God and knowing what the, what he wants you to do and what is the right thing to do. And sometimes you may make a mistake, but God can still use it to his glory and to the good of those around you. Thank you, Joe. Brenton? Yes, there's a couple of points here. Um, Lydia, I think. Firstly, there is precedent. The Jews remaining here in this foreign land is repeated again in the New Testament when you come to the story of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The people who had come to Jerusalem for the the feast were from all over the then-known Roman Empire. If you have a look at the list of 
countries or, or languages that were represented in Acts chapter 2, you realise that the Jews inhabited every part of the then known Roman world and they took back the message of Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven with them. Here, I believe God God has always had a plan all the way through, starting with Abraham. Where did Abram come from? He came from a heathen environment. What is Where are these people? They're in a heathen environment. I believe there's a, a very definite lesson here. And if you read um, at the end of the story, in uh, chapter 8 and verse 17, as a result of what we will ultimately discuss, many of the people, it says, in uh, Shushan became Jews. In other words, they converted to the Jewish religion. So God has always got plans. We could say, yes, wasn't a good idea to stay there. They should have gone back, but God is using the people who are there. And I believe that we ever, the lesson for us today is wherever we find ourselves, I believe God can use us. Thank you, Brenton. Uh, Denise? Um, I think that uh, further on from what Brenton was saying is that God sees the the end. Mm. He, he knows the, the end picture. We don't always see the end picture. And so he works now to produce something that's going to happen in the future that is part of his purposes. Yep. And that's great that he knows the end from the beginning and we, we can trust him. Amen. Thank you. Now let's move on. Uh, Mordecai uncovers a conspiracy and saves the king's life. What happened, Len? Well, to answer this question, I'd like to talk about perhaps the big rocking horse or the big orange or the big banana, but in actual fact, it's the big thana. Let me read from Esther chapter 2, verses 31 through to the end of the chapter. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, big thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. And all this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So, Mordecai heard about this attempted or intended assassination. He told his young cousin, who by this time was the queen, who reported it to the king. And so here we see something else happening. In the life of the uh, empire that existed back then, certain events were being lined up and people were being used to carry out God's intentions. God's intentions was to save his people. His intentions are the, still the same today. He wants his people to be saved, to be witnesses for him. And so Mordecai did this, but no credit was attributed to him. It was just that he reported it. And later on in the story, we find out how the king wanted to honour Mordecai. But at this stage, he didn't realise that his life was protected through this informant, Mordecai. Thank you, Len. 
As we move on, on the chapters, we observe that Haman's plot, plotting to destroy not only Mordecai alone, but all his people. So what drove him to do that? Brenton? There are a couple of reasons, but um, I'll start with chapter 3 and verse 2. Verse 1 says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. And again in verse 5 you find uh, that um, when Haman finds out about this, he, he is really angry about it. One issue here is his personal ego is uh, being, I believe, insulted by the fact that Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. We know the reason as to why Mordecai wouldn't bow to him, because Mordecai would have remembered the commandments, and he wouldn't bow to anyone other than the God of heaven. But there are other issues that uh, aren't so clearly revealed here, um, Ledger. And one of the issues is it says Haman was an Agagite, we find uh, Agag, the king of the Amalekites, mentioned in First Samuel chapter 15. Now, Agag was ultimately killed by Samuel. However, this guy was a descendant. Whether some of the uh, Agagites had got away or not, he's, he's a descendant of King Agag. Mordecai, by way of contrast, is it's mentioned he's ultimately is the son of Kish, a Benjamite. The father of Saul was Kish, who was a Benjamite. Uh, I would suggest to you, if I can put it in um, not too tritely, that this is payback. Um, God, in the Je Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 19, told Moses that when your people are settled in the promised land and are given rest all around, you are to wipe the Amalekites from the face of the earth. In other words, we would call it today... Um, a purge, a pogrom or whatever term you want to use for it. And so I believe that Haman, when he found out Mordecai's actual heritage, took this opportunity not only to destroy him personally, but to wipe them all out uh, from the face of the earth. So this is a reversal of what God had told Moses to do. Um, and I think that there's a fair, a fair degree of revenge here. It's more than just a personal insult that this man won't bow down to me. So I think that's that's what's driven him to do it. And, of course, the rest of the story unfolds as we go along. Thank you, Brenton. Nick, you have something to add? I just want to point out again and um, have, a, again, a taken-home lesson from here, is that Mardukai, he was a good citizen, he respected all the laws and all the practices and uh, even more than that, he was interested in the well-being even of his enemies. I mean, just keep in mind, the, the Jewish people, they were uh, in a foreign land. They were... Uh, um, not home <laughs> and they have all the reasons if you like uh, humanly to be against everything uh, what was run in that place in that country 
But here he showed, shows dignity. She shows character that when he heard about some plotting against the king, instead of joining that plot and say, okay, let's get, uh, get rid of it, of this king and maybe we can go home. He was defending the authorities. But, and here is the good question I believe we need to learn. He was not going to compromise when the decree came to bound down. Mm. This is very important because we live in a time of coercion. We live in a time of all sorts of pressure. And many people will, will say, but you have to respect authorities. Now, here there was authorities when the decree was given. That was authority. But what cost? And I'm inviting uh, you, my dear friend, listening today, to stay stay tall in regard to what God is asking you to do. Because God is the ultimate uh, ruler of this uh, uh, planet Earth and the whole universe. A very good lesson I can learn from this uh, man of God. Thank you, Nick. Now, Haman's was the right hand of the king uh, in in the kingdom. So when he went to the king, what was his proposal's reason to the king for killing this nation? Dennis? Okay, in... Esther chapter 3 verses 8 and 9 we have the proposal but I need to go back to verse 7 it says in the um, and I'm reading from the clear word in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus in the month of Nisan the first month of the year Haman decided to cast lots to determine when to carry out his plan to kill all the Jews in the land the lot fell on the 13th day of the month of Adar the last month of the year Verse 8 says, Then he went to see the king and said, There's a group of people scattered throughout your kingdom whose customs are entirely different from ours. They don't keep the laws of the king or have the interest of the country at heart. It's not wise to tolerate such people because they stir up dissatisfaction against the king's orders. If it please the king, this is verse 9, let him issue an order that all such people be executed for disloyalty. By executing them and confiscating their property, those who carry out this order will be able to bring more than 375 tons of silver to the royal treasury. Uh, And in verse 10 it says the king was pleased with this and that he was going to seal the proclamation with his ring. He said to Haman, and when you've confiscated their property, all their silver will be yours to manage for the good of the country. So it seems like uh, greed comes in at this point. Okay, so my question was, was he bribing the king with this big amount of silver that he promised to place it uh, into the royal treasury? It's it's 10,000 talents of silver, which is 375 pounds. He's definitely the king. That's right. The king's falling for it. Yeah. Suggest very quickly that um, a lot is revealed about um, Ahasuerus or Xerxes, if you will, uh, in the book of Esther. I would suggest to you that he's a fairly um, shallow character. First of all, um, the uh, his advisors advised him to find another queen, and it says he agreed to that readily. Maybe his bride was still hurt that she refused to come in before him. 
And here we find um, rather than he, he just takes at face value what Haman tells him, that these people are against um, the king and they're against the rules of the empire and all the rest of it. He doesn't investigate any of this. He simply says, yeah, go ahead, do it. I would suggest to you there's there's not a, a great deal of retrospection or introspection being practised by the king here as to why is this guy wanting to get rid of these people? Maybe I should investigate this a bit more. None of that. Thank you, Brenton. Len? Yes, you know, the old saying, power corrupts and absolute power. power corrupts, absolutely. It could be a case of that. He just um, left it up to his advisers. Thank you, Len. Well, guys, uh, that's a wonderful story still, uh, uh, you know, unfolding here. But I would like to draw the attention of uh, our listener uh, right now to a book which we still have available. If you like to request this uh, offer, it's a book called True Revival. And my dear friend listening today, you just need to send us a text message with the code SABS2. The phone number is 0482093883. Thank you, Nick. Okay, so as a result of uh, Haman's proposal to the king, the king re- releases a decree. How? What was the decree and how Esther find out about the decree? Joe? Yes, well, in short, the decree was that... And this, this was couriered around all the provinces. It was, in short, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women in one day, and to plunder their possessions. This was given permission that all, you know, if your neighbor was Jewish, you could do this and you were protected from the law. And... um it says the couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Shushan was perplexed. So the people themselves are going, what, what's going on? What's going on? You know, how can this happen? And yet king and Haman sit down to have a drink over this. And I go, yeah, that's a really good plan of ours. <laughs> Patting each other on the back. I think it's important to remember that this plot, this was far more than between Haman and Mordecai. It is more than Haman just wanting to kill all the descendants of Israel. I believe this is another attempt of Satan to destroy the Messiah by destroying the line through whom it was promised. And we've seen that happen a number of times through Scripture in many forms. The Bible tells us that when Mordecai learned of all this, this is in verse 4 of chapter 4, all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it, and there was great, very great mourning among the Jews. Now, this is clearly a very, very public display which was obviously a means to reach Esther, who was probably shielded in her palace from much of what was going on. And we know this because it says, when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, like she, this is how she learns of it, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on, but he would not accept them. And then she sent out a trusted eunuch to find out 
what is the problem? And they met in a very public place, which is probably mm. in secret. <laughs> <laughs> now, Mordecai told him everything that had happened, and he also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And then he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. He reports back to Mordecai saying, this is what Esther said when when I told her what you said. And she reminded him that anyone who approaches the king without invitation would be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. Now, possibly the guards had been instructed to kill any uninvited guests as they could be part of the plot to assassinate the king. And when you lose a battle, you know, you weren't very popular in your hometown. But 30 days, she said to him, have passed since I was called to go to the king. And what he was asking her to do was very serious and life-threatening. And after all, who could predict the mood that the king was in? Yeah, thank you, Joe. So, Len, can you please answer this question? Mordecai persuades Esther to help in this situation, the first time and now the second time. Now, what was his answers to Esther? Okay, well, of course, she was concerned that she might lose her own life by approaching the king. But Mordecai, I, Mordecai said, and I'm reading from verse 14 of chapter 4, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And here's the crunch of the whole story, and probably also for us who live in this day and age. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And what did Esther do? Well, she asked Mordecai to go and gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast and obviously pray. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. What a brave statement. Yes. It meant that she would give up her life for the sake of the people, perhaps. It's actually a reminder of Jesus gave up his life to save his people. So this is what happened. She decided she would go and approach the king, and if the king didn't accept her, and she would lose her life. But the story has a much happier ending. Thank you, Len. Let me just uh, draw another lesson here. We haven't talked much about why the Jews were captives and living in this place. But if we go back, we understand that uh, they were not doing what God was uh, expecting them to do, to be the light of the world to teach all the people around them about God and uh, to be a light in the world as we are called to be. Remember, my dear friend, we are talking about God's mission, my mission. But God is bringing upon them 
a crisis and all of a sudden there is an awakening here. Now, I like to ask this, my dear friend and uh, panel, how many of us or how many churches have you heard that they set aside like a three-day fasting? Not many. Maybe there are some, but it's not so common. Why? Maybe we don't realize the crisis we are in. We may need to do that because uh, God has a great plan with us to be the light of the world. And if we are not doing this, those words which Mordecai said for, for a such of this may not apply to us. But I believe God has a place for me and you in his plan to finish his work on this planet Earth. Why not to uh, join the movement? Thank you, Nick. So after the fasting from the part of um, Esther with her ladies and Mordecai uh, with the Jewish people, Esther decided to approach the king in a very smart and intelligent manner. So what happened? Well, she went in before the king and she actually made a request. Notice his extravagance in verse 3 of chapter 5. And the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. This is the first proposal. There's a number of reasons for this, but one major reason is I believe there's a certain degree of strategy here. Um, you don't, on the first occasion, blurt out that we're going to be destroyed. The reason I've called you here is we're going to be destroyed, and um, the guy who's going to do the destroying is the one sitting with you at the banquet table or um, at the, the banquet couch. So I believe she's... Doing something here that's interesting. She's invited Haman to come. He thinks that this is an indication of his prestige that not only the king, but he has been invited to this banquet. On the second occasion in chapter seven, she then reveals that what is going to happen to us is that we're actually going to be destroyed. And the wording used is then Queen Esther answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So strategy-wise, this is wise doing. Haman's at ease. He's got no idea what's coming. The first, uh, he's gone home and told his wife after the first one, you know what? I've been to a banquet with the king and the queen and I'm the only one who's been invited. And now we come back to the second one. And all of a sudden, she, uh, the king, the king is not stupid. He says to himself, what is going on here? Queen Esther, what, what's going on? And she actually reveals to him that we're going to be destroyed. And he says, who is the wicked person who would do this? And she says, Haman. Brenda, what, what is the end of on? Haman? What is the end of Haman? Yeah. Well, you know what? Um, 
he'd prepared a gallows 50 cubits high. For those of you who wonder how much 50 cubits is, it's about 22 or 23 metres in height. Why would you want to hang somebody from something 23 metres in height? Whether it's impaling them or hanging them is irrelevant. They're going to be a sight to behold all the way across the city. It would be utter humiliation. You've not only been executed, but your body is on public display. So rather than Mordecai being hung on the, the gallows, Haman is. And then we find on find out later on that his sons are killed and they, they are hung on the gallows as well. Now, the difference between what Haman proposed, uh, he was going to ravage the Jews, destroy them and plunder their property. The Jews here are allowed to defend themselves. However, they didn't take any plunder. I think even though there's nothing said, I think here this is really interesting because um, God generally said when they went out to battle not to not to take plunder. Here they are, they're just defending themselves. I think they're recognising that the reason as to why they're in this position of being able to defend themselves is because God's providence has been revealed all the way through this book, even though his name is not mentioned. I think that's fairly significant. Thank you, Brenton. So as a result of this, the king edicts a decree on behalf of the Jews. Yes, when the king uh, realised that Haman was up to no good, he issued another edict because he could not rescind the first one. Yep. And this other edict was that the Jews could defend themselves, and not only that, but attack those who um, hated them, and they did that. And uh, there were other officials in the government who were neither Jews nor hated the Jews who joined them because it says in chapter 9 and verse 14, Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. And then it speaks about the fear of Mordecai. <laughs> this is a wonderful statement. The fear of Mordecai, the fact that Mordecai was a good man but he was now a very influential man and people realised that good had triumphed over bad, which is going to be and is the fate of this this world. Good yes. will triumph over evil. God wins. Satan loses. Amen. So what, were, uh, what are the results of Esther's effort in this situation? What was the result of this? Well, the Jews eventually celebrated. They were not destroyed according to Haman's plan. And a special feast called the Purim was instituted and it is still carried on to this very day when victory was won through the efforts of good Queen Esther and her good cousin Mordecai. I would like to say this, you know, the influence of a good person cannot be over or underestimated. A good person can make a lot of difference. And I believe this applies to us as a panel in the area where we live. And maybe it applies to you too, listeners, depending on whether you've committed your life to the Lord. Your influence 
may be very beneficial in your area, your society, where you might live. Well, in ancient times, the Lord worked in a wonderful way through consecrated women who united in his work, in their work with men, whom he had chosen to stand as his representatives. He used women to gain great and decisive victories. Esther and Mordecai worked and lived with a sense of integrity. Despite the challenges their life threw at them, they remained dedicated workers for God and developed reputations for their diligence and honesty. As a result, when the activities of people around them conspired against them, their reputations became crucial to their survival. If either Esther or Mordecai had not habitually been responsible people who served those around them with integrity, the story would have been very different. Their integrity gave them the platform from which to ask for favors and speak openly when it was a matter of life and death, and they were not only heard at that moment, but they were also listened. We must never underestimate the role of our relationships with people may have in the long run, for every one of us is needed to see our existing places of work as our mission field, to work with honesty and integrity, to allow the relationships to blossom naturally, being led, guided, and directed by the Holy Spirit. Joe, would you like to close with prayer? Certainly. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lessons that you have given us in the book of Esther. Your name may not be mentioned in it, but your fingerprints and handiwork are clearly evident. Mm. We know that we can trust you to be there for us always, even even in scary situations. And we, we face plenty of those in our everyday lives. Help us to remember to come to you all the time, especially when in need, knowing that you are a God who hears and answers prayers, trusting you implicitly. Help us to be faithful to you always. Thank you for your constant watch, care, and love. Be with each listener and panel member throughout this day and on. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, everyone, for your participation. Thank you, Lydia, for uh, taking us through this uh, yes. wonderful study. And I believe, as Joe was just praying, uh, we could learn a lot of good lessons and apply it in our life. And wh- why not to be a Mordecai? or an Esther of this uh, time. May God bless you all, and uh, I'll invite you, my dear friends, to join us again next time. We are going to conclude this uh, wonderful theme, um, God's mission, my mission, with uh, our uh, last study for this year, and that will be the end of God's mission. Please join us again. We'll be very happy to have you with us and learn together. Until then, may God bless you and continue, please, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus.